You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. That is what I define as your truth. That space to hear, to take pause, to listen to yourself, to ask yourself, what do I need? What do I want? What am I feeling? Recognizing that the mind is going to be there judging and jumping back and forth and labeling and... Hello, hello, it's Naomi here. Welcome to another episode of the Power of Why podcast, where I talk to creatives and founders about their purpose and how they navigate living on their own terms. As you know, I also package these episodes into show notes that break down the conversation, provide links to resources and people that we mentioned in the episode, and very practical ways to explore yourself and your creativity. So make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. I've dropped the link in the description box. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Welcome to episode 44 of the Power of Why podcast. My name is Naomi Haile, and today I am joined by the incredible Megan Wells. Megan, how are you doing today? I am fantastic, all things uh, considered right now. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I'm so excited to chat with you. I know the the last couple weeks, months have been, I think, times of transition for sure. And to hear, you know, your thoughts about um, specifically the work that you've been doing over the past number of years, you've positioned yourself in a really incredible way to help people and support others through their mindfulness journey. So for the audience, I'll provide some context, and then I'd love to dive into your origin story and sort of how you grew up. Megan Wills has 20 years of experience in diverse professions, and her experiences include mindfulness coaching, and she also has a background in human resource management. Through her work in the professional world and her responsibilities as a mother, Megan emphasizes the importance of intersectional wellness and diversity. And her passion for inclusion and equity stems from her experience as a biracial Black Canadian woman with a Jamaican heritage. And one of the many things that I admire most about you is how open and honest you are about your journey. And in this episode, I would love to delve into these concepts of belonging with you more. So thank you, Megan, again for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was, um, thank you for the intro. I, I'm, I'm honored and grateful to even have the opportunity to speak with you. I've, I've been following you and watching you for a long time and it's absolutely been inspiring to see what you're doing. You represent a younger generation, which ultimately is the future that my daughter will be in. Um, and hopefully, you know, longer than me, <laughs> That being said, when I was your age and younger, I was very much in a mental health struggle that I wasn't willing to admit or Mm -hmm. accept. Um, I struggled a lot with my mental health around my sense of belonging and tying that sense of belonging directly to my, my worthiness. And that worthiness was worthy of, of being loved, worthy of being, of belonging, worthy of being accepted. And this all, at the time, I didn't realize it stemmed from a lot of childhood experiences, a lot of experiences of otherness. I grew up in a broken home, I guess you could call it, um, where my parents separated when I was very young. 
and my mother is a white Canadian and my father is of Jamaican heritage. And my mother struggled with mental health and mental illness um, for a very long time. And so I witnessed a lot of that. And growing up, I was a child by age, but the things I was experiencing and processing emotionally, I didn't have the capacity to process properly. So a lot of the times I would escape. Um, into these deep fantasies. And uh, <laughs> that was kind of my way of coping with it only mm-hmm. because uh, I wasn't able to get those, those um, that emotional engagement and responsiveness and, and um, the many other needs that you rely on your parents for. I wasn't getting that uh, from my primary caregiver, which was my mother, although my father was very, very present um, as a parent. And uh, we we had we were primarily living with my mother up till I was about thirteen, and so I didn't realize until later in my twenties that this that these experiences dir- were a direct correlation to my story, and that's those beliefs that I had and about myself and about the world tied to that story, tied to that identity, mm-hmm. and so this is is the really the background as to why I do the advocacy and the intersectional work because of that experience myself of not only being in a position of otherness in the world with race being a a social construct in a way, uh, because it's not physiological, it's not um, biological that our skin color determines different races. So ultimately was made around supremacy and inferiority complexes and systems that that were in place. Right. And so so growing up with that and then ultimately moving into adulthood and experiencing this really <laughs> magnified uh, my passion to s- support other people that also may be experiencing these things. Mm-hmm. And at that age, you talked about how young you were and didn't really have the capacity to sort of walk through your emotions and that sort of thing. Was there a time or can you remember a time when you maybe worked with someone through it or or was a lot of it you navigating things on your own and trying to understand how you were feeling and what this meant? Um, Did you have anyone guiding you or was a lot lot of the work done sort of in isolation and through research and reading and and just trying to get information that way? Yeah, so I think in two ways, or two, two, two ways to look at it, right? When I was really young, I didn't have anybody really to help me navigate these, um, to be frank and honest. Uh, and I don't want to discredit anyone. My, I, my siblings, obviously, they're younger than me, so I'm, I'm the oldest. And so ultimately, I was put in the position to kind of be the parent before I even knew how to take care of myself or understand these things for myself. So we did the best we could as, as siblings, right? And, and so I don't want to discredit their support and union <laughs> in this, but that I wouldn't say is a direct support uh, around navigating these things. I didn't have a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychotherapist, wellness practice or professional supporting me or even suggested to me. I didn't really have a mentor per se, um, you know, going through the education system, which is why I, why I really love the work that Parents for Diversity is, is doing and trying to continue to elevate and mm-hmm. expand on, right, is because I didn't, even teachers, like I didn't have 
that with teachers either in elementary school, high school, or really college, to be honest. The first mentor that I consider as a official mentor is a woman that I worked with at a at an organization where I did like technical recruiting and staffing. And she was a white woman. And I had done about a year of therapy at this point or two years. So I was about 26. She actually didn't give up on me when it was very easy. I probably would have struggled to have done what she did for someone like me, to be honest. I was I had a chip on my shoulder. I was very angry, very defensive just very challenging to even communicate with or give feedback to and and to quote unquote manage. And so she was at the verge of being like, he went home to her husband saying like, I swear she hates me. Uh, You know, I don't know how I'm going to, how I'm going to do this or how, you know, and so she actually worked with me to create what we call this graph of what was going on with me mentally, like the story, the, the narrative that was happening and the beliefs that were associated with it and how I was perceiving everything and then the reactions that would come from it. And just so you get context and I, just in case anybody else is experiencing this, I never gave myself room or permission to cry Mm. or feel hurt or feel sadness or feel grief, especially in any type of a public setting or (laughs) with just any person, maybe my very close friends could say that, but I didn't trust myself enough. So therefore I wasn't able to trust anybody enough to show that side. And so it was constantly this front of like this fake confident person, this angry defensive, like, I don't, I don't care how you feel or what the problem is. Like, I'm going to bulldoze through this or this person or whatever it is to get what I want, or I'm going to, you know, I'm just, I was just so focused on being right. And so focused on really (laughs) trying to package and wrap up my insecurities. Right. And so this person was the first mentor in my mid twenties to support me. And at this point, like I said, it was a couple of years into therapy where I was just starting to dive into being curious about what was going on with me and, Mm -hmm. but didn't really even understand what that full package was looking like, you know, looking back now to 11 years ago, I don't think I would have ever imagined where I'm at today. And, and this person was interested in that, right? Yeah. And there are definitely so many important pieces here, just being able to understand what those beliefs are and almost these masks that we're all wearing <laughs> to signify or to show that we're supposed to be a certain type of way. And I'm curious, when you talked about not showing emotions like pain for example or being able to cry in front of other people in your mind and in your heart what were you worried about were you worried that if you cried you were showing others that you're vulnerable or were you worried that if you started crying you wouldn't be able to stop like what was it mainly for you at the time yeah so i i can say both of those were a part of it (laughs) depending on the (laughs) on the mood the situation and where i was at right and where I was in my, my cycle as a woman too, you know, so um, definitely both of those. And with the, and with the people that you work with today, what are some of the common, especially around like trauma, past trauma or trauma that you're, they're experiencing right now, you know, how do you walk people through being able to really untangle what it means and how we can begin to move forward? Yeah. It depends on the person. To be honest, I try to be very intentional about compassion in a way that is focused on acceptance of where people are in that moment. 
and that affects my approach. So if, if someone, everybody has their, their comfort zones, right. And their, their reactions to things that are on autopilot when they're triggered. And so it was very interesting actually to, to give a good question to everyone to get curious about. I was talking to um, a close friend of mine who's also a coach in emotional intelligence. And as we're going through this quarantine and this social isolation and physical distancing, who are you when you're triggered? Is Megan when she's triggered? Not who's Megan when she's coaching, not who's Megan when she's meditating or on a podcast episode or you know doing a keynote or running a whatever. Like who is Megan when she's triggered? And looking at those different versions of ourselves, right? And so to answer your question in kind of a roundabout way, it's very catered how I approach each client. When they come into a session with me, they know they've scheduled it. It's not something that typically just pops up out of nowhere. Um, I mean, there are times I'll be in the grocery store or something and then somebody comes up to me and, you know, it turns into something a little bit more than expected, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, those are very rare and few and far between, but they know what they're doing. They know what they're coming to do. And that preparation or or those expectations are kind of already there in a way, right. In their mindset and their behaviors. And so what's important though, is can they connect with themselves in a way that when they are triggered, they can be self-aware they can get curious about what's happening and then they can be compassionate and kind to themselves through those so that afterwards they can turn around and look at themselves in a way that is, I forgive you. I love you. Let's look at this. Let's talk about this. It's not conditional to how I feel about you or, or, or that I do or don't love you. It's, you know, so that's, those are the three pillars I try to ensure that I cater my coaching to, for people to get to as an end objective, ultimately, is Mm -hmm. being who they are when they're triggered, getting curious about it further, being honest about it, loving themselves through it, and then deciding to take on their personal, take that personal power back and deciding how they want to respond versus constantly react to it. Yeah. And, and how is that self-compassion piece very important? Because I, like, I'm pretty open in saying that I've worked with Megan in the past and currently working with her. And in one of our last sessions, you talked about being compassionate with yourself. And, you know, where does that play a piece in being able to really untangle these emotions and understand who you are when you're triggered? Sort of ask yourself the right questions. Is it possible to go through that process and move forward if you are not compassionate with with yourself and your feelings? So I think it's possible, but to what extent, right? What I mean by that is logically with that part of the brain that really enjoys analyzing and logic and, and someone that can say, okay, well, I'm, I'm in fix-it mode and I recognize what's wrong and I'm just going to try to, to fix it and, and package. I, Brene Brown talks about packaging it up in like a bento box, right? And yes, like, yeah. Right? Like organizing vulnerability. So like, if, if you need a visual, that's probably the best visual I would use for that type of, of, of an approach. For it to be something that invokes a, a longer term change and belief about yourself so that when you are triggered and you continue to be triggered and more adversity shows up in life, because I mean, hashtag adulting, like it's just going to, the adversity just continues, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> So the way for it to be something that is sustainable and long-term is 
to bring in that self-compassion piece, right? Working from just that one side of the brain without having that compassion piece and moving into the subconscious and moving further into the body only lasts for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. It's almost conditional, right? So yes, it can work, but for how long? To be completely transparent, I've experienced that. I've done tons of talk therapy. Like I said, 11 years ago or 12 years ago, almost now I started talk therapy. And so that was great, but I was still very much focused on like, I just need to fix myself. So here's the difference, right? I just need to fix myself. I need to fix these things. But when you're saying things like that to yourself, you're actually telling yourself that there's something broken or wrong with you, which comes from a place of shame. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is there's something wrong with me. And so when you're telling yourself, okay, this is what I need to do to fix it. You're telling yourself that it is you and that you are broken. And so without that self-compassion piece of I'm doing the best I can, I was doing the best I can, I am doing the best I can in each moment and accepting yourself from a place of self-trust and love, Mm -hmm. that will allow you to believe in yourself and to believe that there's nothing wrong with you. Then you can actually look at the thoughts from a distance instead of thinking that they are you. Those thoughts are you, these, these, these conditions and these beliefs and these values and these behaviors are you. Yeah. And then define yourself that way. Right. Right. Like if you got your face right down in your Thanksgiving dinner, you know, you're like, I think I'm tasting cranberry sauce. I think I'm tasting turkey. I think I'm tasting, you know, and then you pull yourself away from the plate, push it back. You can see it and smell it and engage your other senses and so on. So it's, that's another analogy to, to recognize you're not the food just because you're inhaling the food. <laughs> How far does that go? Because even when we're describing our own identities, we, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a makeup. It's like components of who we are, our beliefs, our values. So what's that line? Does it stop at we are not our feelings? We are not our emotions? especially as human beings, how do you actually be objective? Because what you were describing is this concept of being objective, like being able to look at your feelings in isolation and not as part of who you are. So I guess I'm trying to understand what that process is because it's not easy. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to be careful about answering this one only because I don't want to sound self-righteous or which means it's like, this is what it should be, or this is what you should do, or this is how you should see it. Because I think it's very important for everyone to explore these things themselves and get curious themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So based on my experience, based on what I've read, based on my training and, and so on, what I will say, that objectivity, that ability to be able to take a step away and look back and detach yourself, doesn't mean that you don't feel the feelings. It doesn't mean that you're not experiencing the sensations in your body associated with those feelings as well. What it means is there is typically these thoughts and these sensations in our body. We're very prone to reacting to these thoughts and these sensations in our body that can be a little bit more intense. So the more intense sensations of our body, like intense intense pleasure or intense pain, right? Those are almost like alerts that go off that we tend to pay more attention to because of the intensity of them. And the same thing with the thoughts, right? So the thoughts that we feel may hold weight to who we are and what we believe, we give more weight, more reaction to those as well, more belief to those as well. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example, right? 
speaking directly to me, what I've alluded to earlier, I had a strong cognitive belief that I was unlovable from my upbringing, from what happened with my mother, and those are your key relationships. And so given that I experienced distance from my mom and through her own inability to provide me with certain things due to her own mental illnesses, this belief that I was unlovable, if anything happened to me that spoke to that belief, I would give it a certain emotion. I would react to it in a certain way because I attached myself to that belief and that belief tied itself to feelings that were associated with it. So for example, how many people listening to this, either now or when you were younger at any point, experienced you like somebody, this person that you like and want to have an intimate relationship with. Now it's more we're in a cut culture. So maybe that the, you know, something like that happens, they ghost you. You, you know, you then start asking yourself or feeling a certain way about it. Like, what's wrong with me? Why would this person do that? How could this happen to me? And so you start going down that judgment and criticizing and beating up yourself type path. And what's associated with it typically for me is that butterfly in my stomach, tension in my chest, my breath gets a little tighter. And when I was younger, I would go out and drink and dance and whatever to distract myself from those sensations and those thoughts, but they were always still in the background. And so denying them and pretending they're not there and that didn't help anything. It just piled up like laundry. And so every guy that I liked that would do something to me that was disrespectful, every time I would put my own beliefs or my own needs aside and self-sabotage just to get a certain level of attention or a certain level of affection or intimacy, anything to prove that belief wrong because I didn't want to actually look at the belief and how it played out in my life, there would be the spiral, right, of making that belief bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where it really affected my physical and my mental health, right? And so that's just one example. So that's the best way I could put it is, is through, through my own experience of how that played out. Yeah. And I think everyone has their own flavor of what that means, especially in the world that we're living in right now. I mean, always we live in a very vulnerable world. I just finished watching that talk that you mentioned by Brene Brown. And I think the reason why people resonate with these types of subjects is because it offers Well, one reason, at least for me, it offers language to things that I don't normally have access to. Do you know what I mean? And so working and like listening to the work that you are doing too, I think it provides people this identification or associate our feelings to and understand the automatic responses or reactions that we have to experiences. And so you know, there is one really cool blog post that you wrote on your website called the I'm good illusions. And I wanted to yeah. spend some time here in this piece because you talk about the five different types of illusions that block us from being able to be compassionate with ourselves and others. Can you um, talk a little bit about what some of, you don't have to go through all five, but what some of these illusions are and why you thought it was important to write that piece. I'll have a link to it in the show notes as well. 
Yeah, I was going to say, so people know, <laughs> I can allude to it, but um, so people can get an, an opportunity there. So where this, this came from is I was at work one day and, and I remember experiencing just the typical day-to-day small talk of, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good today. Oh, hey, how are you doing? I'm good today. Oh, hey, how are you? And one day there was that report from the States uh, or that, sorry, that um, news report from the States that the lady that was sitting in her living room with her nephew or something was shot through her window by the police. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember this. Yeah. And so this was, I believe this is around this time or there was just a lot of police brutality because I wrote this in September of 2019. Okay. And there's a lot of cases of like racism and discrimination and hate crimes and just a lot of like fearful and angry people. Yeah. Putting them into actions. And I was like, it was just overwhelming to me at the time and very triggering. I often have these moments as a mother of like, you just feel so out of control sometimes when you hear these things mm-hmm. happening. And it was at that point, it was just a lot. It was very frequent that it was happening, that I was seeing all these, these things happening. Somebody asked me how I was doing and I just started bawling. And I gave myself that. I've been giving myself that permission. I went on the Vipassana 10 Day Silent meditation course with no access to my phone with no journal like I can't even talk to my family so it's the longest time I'd been away with no contact to my husband my daughter my siblings whatever so I go on this and I come back more open than ever and all these things were still continuing to happen and I was I had given myself so much permission to feel that I just couldn't go back to not honoring that And so that's where, to give context of where this blog post came, everything I write about guys and everything I post about is very real. It's Mm -hmm. not even from a place of like a self-righteous. It's like, this is how I experience things. So this is what's helped me take it or leave it. I completely respect what everybody does. Right. Um, It's not for everybody. It's just the, my perspective. And so one of the myths that I put in um, or illusions was some people just handle difficult emotions better. So this idea that you or others aren't affected by these intense emotions and feelings is completely unrealistic is just to give you the first sentence of what I wrote. Everybody is affected by intense emotions and physical sensations. It's just how do you express them? How do you associate yourself with them? What do you decide to do? Do you decide to react or respond? So handling it better or worse looks like what also? Does it look like not crying when somebody comes to my desk after experiencing what I experienced. And then that just means I'm handling it better. It's all based on, on what each person believes, right? There are conditioning culturally and and within our society. That was kind of one of the first ones. The other one that I think is important is the one about you. They are are just luckier than others. Yeah. That's the one I was going to highlight for you as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So why would you highlight that one? What, what about that one stood out for you? You are luckier than others. That just doesn't give you any control. There are things that you that are in your ether that you, there are decisions that you can make, actions that you can take, and just blaming things on luck or coincidences or things that you didn't yeah. at all feed into. I see it as a as an excuse <laughs> more than anything. Yeah. There's nothing right or wrong about it. Really, it's just recognizing that we're all very different for very many reasons, right? And these differences require compassion. And so to think that 
because somebody else may look a certain way or you only see certain things from them that they're just luckier to not have experienced things or to just handle it better is somebody's way of potentially continuing to perpetuate a belief in a story that they're a victim all the time and that their life is so hard and that things just keep happening to them and so they have bad luck quote unquote, I just, I'm just an unlucky person, right? Those types of beliefs, narratives that are going on. And, and so they dismiss the possibility that other people could be experiencing things and just expressing it differently, right? And that's not right or wrong. It just is a different way of, of doing things. Recognizing that with compassion, that that really is them just doing the best they can, right? Again, back to that compassion piece allows for you also to not connect yourself with it in a way that that's personal. It's not personal to you what this person is doing or saying. This is just their automatic response to this associated with their story. So understanding that not everybody deserves to see every part of you. That's where boundaries come from. And also recognizing that you're human. And so being compassionate with yourself when you do possibly have reactions that you can go back and say, well, I could have done a bit better. Sure, fine, whatever. But at that time, time, if you could have done better, you would have. And so you were doing literally the best you could. And so moving forward, accepting yourself as you are, will allow you to be able to not ruminate on that specific experience and and continue that narrative of beating yourself up ultimately. Yeah. And, and something that I've started to think about too is like the example that you have here is, well, they just haven't been through trauma like me. I realize that exactly what I show people is what they know of me. And, you know, for those who close friends, family members that see more, great. Like we all have blind spots, but no one knows you like you do. And you never have a hundred percent view or access to other people's lives. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about alignment and what that means, what that looks like for you and the people that you work with as well. Because obviously this, the way that people define it is going to be different, Mm -hmm. but how does living in your whole truth and almost this full expression of yourself relate to alignment? Yeah. So I'll jump into that in a second. Going back to the belonging piece, right? Living in your full self, meaning unapologetically giving yourself permission to believe about yourself and act and respond in a way that comes from your intentions. That is what I define as your truth, that space to hear, to take pause, to listen to yourself, to ask yourself, what do I need? What do I want? What am I feeling? Recognizing that the mind is going to be there judging and jumping back and forth and labeling and trying to get you to move and other sensations are going to show up in your body and you're going to try to get you to either get away from those sensations or to crave or or desire another sensation to make up for that sensation. So to ultimately feel differently, right. Than you're feeling and to think differently than you're thinking at that moment. And so living that full expression of your truth allows you to have that space to be authentic to, to, to yourself, to listen to yourself, to be that best version of you Mm -hmm. in a way that resonates with your intentions for yourself, for the world, for life, which is how, how you ultimately want to quote unquote show up. So in terms of alignment, I see it more as belonging to yourself. That feels, that feels good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Belonging to yourself. Yeah. Because the way that I see it as well is just when what I think is what I say is what I do. So sitting in my truth, speaking my truth, as opposed to, you know, what I think is what I sometimes say, which is what I occasionally do. And so 
things sort of fall into place and it feels right to move this way and speak honestly from your heart. So getting to that place when you're working with people, whether it's one-on-one or through your group sessions, what is that feeling that you're hoping to help people get to? My overall objective is to help people find acceptance in themselves Mm -hmm. and truly accept themselves in each moment because I, I believe, and this is a part of mindfulness teachings is that acceptance piece allows for you to be in alignment and authentic because you're accepting things that are constantly changing thoughts, feelings, experiences, sensations. You, if you are intentional about that acceptance, it doesn't, it's not about me trying to make you feel any better, trying to get you to feel more peaceful or more joy or, or whatever it may be. Those feelings, those are just feelings. So feeling those things will come and then they'll go. And then what? I just try to offer space to not add to the judgment that you're already experiencing within yourself, not add to the otherness that you may already be experiencing in life, not add to the criticism, the fear, not add to those things that move you further away from acceptance and courage and love and compassion. And to just give you the space to, even if it's you come into something with me and you are afraid and you're feeling that fear, my intention is that you feel safe feeling that fear with me present with you or that anger or that judgment, whatever it may be, the feeling, the sensation, the thought, the belief that you're experiencing in, in each moment is that I'm, I accept it as you, I accept you, I accept it as it is when it comes up. And mm-hmm. so will that intention transfer into your ability to do the same thing for you and, and with the tools that I provide and the insight and the introspective opportunities to the questioning that I ask and the meditations that I offer, right? So my goal isn't to make you more comfortable and super relaxed. <laughs> I just think that having a space where somebody is not, and this is what the therapy and, and coaching has done for me as well, is find someone a group, however you see it, but you find someone ultimately that's a practitioner that can give you that space to be Mm -hmm. unfiltered and fully yourself. And you work through those things so that you can fill your cup and walk out into the world, into your relationships, into your job, into your whatever it may be, studies, and be the best version of yourself. These spaces I advocate for because they are a key part of your self-care and your self-love. Yeah to have that space, right? And to have those people there that can allow you to fully express the good, the bad, the ugly, and whatever it is that you're judging about yourself so that you can, you can look at that. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you never, if you never look at the smoke signals and you never take a look in the mirror, that lack of awareness will never allow you to transform and reach self-actualization and develop and grow. Yeah, so that's Incredible. And that's so aligned with with your why, which is one of the last questions. But before we delve into that, the question is, the biggest choice that I had to make to fulfill my destiny is? The biggest choice I would say, oh, would be, uh, it's going to sound so cheesy. You hear me (laughs) judging myself, guys. You see, even I do it. Um, Choosing myself. Choosing myself first. And that has never been harder than it has been since I've become a mother and a wife. And what I mean by that is it's very easy to care give others 
And how many of us are like, I know what I have to do. I know what self-care looks like. I'll get to it in a second once I get this last load of laundry in and I make sure, you know, this, that dinner's ready and, you know, my child's butt is wiped and yada, yada, yada. Like you have all these things. I'm going to call my friend and I promise I restore. Once I get all those things done, then I'm ready to like practice self-care or put myself first or my needs first or listen to my needs or even ask for what my needs are and honor them. So the hardest I would say is actually <laughs> looking at what are the things, including the beliefs, the behaviors, the conditioning, the identities that are holding me back from putting myself first in a way that is not necessarily narcissistic or damaging to my responsibility as a mother and to my commitment to my marriage, but in a way that allows for a more healthy balance of those things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you know it too, what the expectations are of women. And I'm not saying they aren't present for men. I recognize also there are different very challenging, shame-driven expectations of men as well. And so these gender expectations, these gender roles that are imposed on us through conditioning and so on, some of those things, you don't even realize how they impact you in your beliefs about yourself, about self-care and so on, until you decide to really take a look at them. Mm-hmm. So That's a really powerful response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to thank you for being honest and sharing um, your experiences, the way that you grew up and how that's really shaped the the person that you are today. And also the incredible work that you're doing in the community and sharing your gifts. Thank you, Megan. And thank you so much. Um, and I've, like I said in the beginning, you are a part of what gives me hope when I get into those zones of like what kind of a world is my daughter growing up in so I want to honor that as well and I appreciate your compliment and I appreciate your your acknowledgement of this it is very important to me this this work in these spaces so I I thank you for that as well Mm -hmm. thanks Megan and uh, for the final question on the power of why what is your why when shit hits the fan sometimes and you're tired and maybe on the brink of really questioning why I'm doing this work. What is the reason that you keep going? And I want you to be specific. Yeah, I actually, so I wrote my why on my wall because it's something that I look at every day. It's very important for me and I feel it and I know it, but I meditate on it still to give myself that space to engage my senses because I think it's important for it to stay in, in the physical memory of my body as well. So this is my, my why is very personal, but I love sharing <laughs> these things. So to really honor my intention of courage. <clears throat> so I enjoy empowering people, leading and learning. I need impactful work that supports my interests, which align with my values. Those values of fam- our family, inclusiveness, integrity, and equity. My intentions are rooted in courage and I'm motivated by love. So that is my very personal why. <laughs> I have like a business why that's a very different why, but it's, it, it ultimately is all intersectional for me. It all, it all aligns to the same thing. Yeah. And it's a reflection of everything that you're, you're doing and the person that you're being as well. So you said, what was the last part about 
your intentions being rooted in courage and encouraged and I'm motivated by love. I'm just, I'm so, I'm so like put on a Disney movie that is all about love or something like that. And I'm just, I am just, I'm like the person that cried three times in Frozen 2. Like that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) I just love this beautiful thing that can transform so many so many things for so many people in so many spaces so that is that is that's that motivates me thank you megan thank you for sharing again and thank you for everyone who took the time to listen to this incredible episode thank you so much for listening to this week's episode you can find the show notes at naomihiley.com if you haven't already subscribe to the power of why on spotify or itunes wherever you listen to podcasts, and I look forward to you listening to next week's episode.